Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. The new boy in the neighborhood lives downstairs and it's understood. He's there just to take good care of me. Like he's one of the family. Charles in charge of our days and our nights. Charles in charge of our wrongs and our rights. And I see, I want, I want Charles in charge of me. Charles in charge of our days and our nights. Charles in charge of our wrongs and our rights. And I see, I want Charles in charge of me. Charge. <laughs> All right. So I was amazed that they used that during the coronation. I think it was, you might've missed it. It was, I think in hour four, uh, they used it, but, uh, but I thought it really, you know, it really spoke to the, to the occasion. Um, so yes, I understand you're not going to call up about the coronation. I know that. I know that you're going to call about something at 888-720-WNPR. You know, it could be the thing that you wish somebody in your life would talk to you about, but they won't. 888-720-9677 is the number you call. Lily Tyson will be taking your calls in there. Mr. McPants is off today. And what else did I have to say? Well, I did want to say... I want to talk about the coronation just for a second, and then we'll get to your calls. Oh, we need uh, some women calls. We have three men on the line right now. So women, call in 888-720-WNPR. So, you know, really, when you get down to it, it's such a strange job. I mean, really, the job really hasn't been any good, you know, probably since the 17th century. You know, that's what <laughs> I mean, because in the 17th century, it turned out you could just behead the king. You know, it's just like... We don't like you. We're having a civil war. Uh, get out there. Um, but I, I think now it's, you know, you're the king. And so the prime minister has to come and brief you on a regular, is it weekly? I'm not sure, uh, basis. But you can't really say anything back. You're supposed to seem very neutral. So, And, and you're also the something of the Church of England, right? You're kind of the titular head of the archbishop uh, of, of the Church of England. So, I mean— Theoretically, the Archbishop of Canterbury, why can't I say that word? Archbishop of Canterbury should be dropping by to brief you too. But you can't say anything. I mean, you could say, you know, let's, let's, I don't know, let's shake up this whole communion thing a little bit. You know, how about a barbecue flavored wafer? Uh, But they're not going to do stuff that you, they, they, they don't have to. You're the king and outside of the people who, who are direct reports to you, outside of those people, nobody has to do anything you tell them to do. And I think that's the real problem. You know, it's just, it's just not, it's not a real kind of king somehow. And of course, the other thing is, you know, you're king of a lot of other different nations, you know, Papua New Guinea and <clears throat> Tuvalu and Jamaica. And, and if they were smart, and this, they had a good chance this time. Because, you know, people probably had forgotten who was going to get to be king. Uh, they needed, like, a Jamaican king. 
the next king should be something like that. Because I think it would really pep the whole situation up a lot. I know that there's some kind of patrilinear sequence they have. It's going to be William or something. But if I were if I were running the United Kingdom right now, I'd be thinking, how do we work it out so we could have like a Jamaican king the next time? A Jamaican woman king. I think that would be just excellent. All right. So um, you know the numbers to call, and you are calling those numbers. And we're going to begin with Anthony from New Haven. Anthony, you have the floor. Thank you, Colin. Uh, I want to talk about a, um, a news article I saw last week where the headline was, uh, one in three emo- remote employees admit they've worked from car or bed. Mm-hmm. And that word admit really struck me because, you know, typically we think of an admission or admitting something as some sort of statement against one's own interests. And I think it nicely illustrates the sort of divide between employers and employees. So employers think that, or they feel that they're paying for an employee's undivided attention, you know, to sit up straight, to focus, to, uh, in addition to completing tasks. Employees, I think, think, or have come to think that they're being paid to complete tasks. However, where, whenever, maybe not, maybe not necessarily whenever, but however, or wherever they want. So I guess my question for you, Colin, is should employers care where employees work? And, and, and let me make that a two-part question or, or throw, in, throw in kind of a twist on that. Um, should an employer care where an employee works if the employer has given the employee certain equipment, uh, like a dual monitor that can only be used in a home office uh, in that scenario is working at the, the, a beach or a park, um, you know, something that would require uh, an admission Well, so first of all, Anthony, let me quote from a a related study that showed that if every single work-from-home employee who works from bed were laid end-to-end, they would be very happy. Uh, But uh, (laughs) beyond that, um, I would just say this. I I think a lot of it depends. I actually have given some thought about this, uh, even in connection with this show, our staff. A lot of it depends, I think, on how the task is defined, you know, and how the task is evaluated. So with the people that I work with, by and large, the people who work on this show, what I really want from them is a really good show. I want them to do really good shows, and I want them to be creative, and I want them to um, you know, think hard about what we're doing. And I'm less concerned about where they're sitting while they're doing that. Um, if they're working from home, I, I think that they should work in a way I, – I evaluate people – who work with me in terms of how productive and cooperative and cheerful and you know excited by the job they are, and, and I don't you know I don't really care about the details. But not every job can be like that, and there are jobs that are more tied to measurable and micro measurable amounts of, of, of productivity. And so, but once again, I mean, if you can hit your target, whatever it is, uh, I don't. How, why should anyone care whether you're lying down or not, um, or, or whether? You're, <laughs> Whether you're in your car, I I, absolutely, I don't understand that. And and it, if it's if it's a job that permits has the capacity to permit remote work, I think you know I think it's, it's kind of micromanaging to say, but yeah, but I don't don't do it in bed. Um, I don't know. You know, John Milton wrote all of Paradise Lost while lying in bed. Um, you know, it came out okay, right? <laughs> I don't know. What's your, what are your thoughts? <laughs> Well, you know, I think, I think employers are, you know, like I said, I think, you know, one, one thing that the office 
has served as historically as is as a sort of captive device, right? So you go in there and you can't do your laundry. You can't take the kids to the park. You can't go pick up your dry cleaning. You're stuck at work. And, and so now employers, you know, some employers anyway, you know, are not having that, uh, that, that captive space anymore. And employees are deciding that they want to do, you know, other parts of their lives that fit work into that as opposed to fitting those other things into work. So um, I think employers are struggling with that sort of loss of control um, that occurs when employees work from home and therefore employees get to decide where they work, uh, how they work, and, you know, are, are more wanting to, to, to fit in uh, chores, you know, uh, going to the gym, other things around work. Uh, but I think employers feel that that sort of divided attention takes away from the work. You know, personally, if you're asking me what I think, I think employees should be able to work whenever they, or, or I'm sorry, wherever they want, however they want, as long as they get their job done. Um, and, you know, to me, it, it, it seems that the employer should not be so concerned with, uh, you know, where that work is being done as long as it gets completed. I think also increasingly, I mean, this is actually a somewhat serious subject because increasingly as we have kind of different kinds of employees over the last 30 years coming into the workplace, I was just listening to Mary Louise Kelly being interviewed on some damn show earlier, and she was just talking about the fact that her primary loyalty is to her her kids, and she has stood up in the middle of all things considered and said to her co-host, I have to go because the the babysitter just texted me from the ER or something. You know, I'm gone. Goodbye. You know, and he's looking at her like, you're what? But I mean, you know, people who have kids uh, are often doing kind of split shifts or kind of complicated things where they're patching together some some childcare in the home and maybe, you know, some some grandparents who are kind of helping out. And but, you know, but maybe one person is kind of working a little bit more during the day. The other person is shading their work a little bit more towards night. And if you value those kinds of employees, if, if those people are, are people who are doing really good work, I think you do make a lot of room for it. And, and you understand also that, I mean, I think as you're suggesting, not everybody does their best work in an eight-hour concentrated burst. You know, there are an awful lot of people, I'm probably one of them, who, like there's a point around 11 a.m. most mornings where I go and walk the dog, you know, like in an outdoor setting somewhere and just breathe some fresh air. And it actually really helps my mind as I kind of get ready and a little bit more oxygenated to sit here in the studio. I think, you know, people have all kinds of different work styles. And there's no reason to suppose that sitting in one place or being on a physical site for eight hours is the best way for everybody to go. Now, I do think that there there is a thing that gets lost, and we we really struggle with it on this show during the pandemic, and we haven't really quite patched it all back up together. In fact, tomorrow we're having we're having a massive meeting, like as many people as a, as have ever been brought together who are directly connected or indirectly connected to this show on my deck. Uh, because a few of us are still a little bit you know, concerned about COVID stuff. But one thing that we do know is the sort of casual interplay that goes on that often creates or often leads to creative decisions. You know, you can't do that on Zoom. You can do sort of goal-focused stuff on Zoom, and you can brainstorm on Zoom. But what you can't do, and what we used to do a lot here, is be working at our stations, and suddenly one person looks at the other and says, you know what we should really do? You know, and then some crazy idea pops out, but that's the kind of thing that we feed on. 
So I think that's the problem that that you know is hard to solve with everybody working remotely. You've got to have you've got to make some situations like we've decided. Like Lily Tyson, uh, our our senior producer, and I, we just went for a walk one day, you know, around Elizabeth Park on a freezing cold day, and I think we got more accomplished there than we do in most meetings because we just you could just walk and talk and just think out loud, you know, and that's the thing that I worry about at least. In organizations that are more dry, uh, you know, driven by creative focus, I don't know. You know, like actuaries could probably work from home, right? Uh, I don't know. I don't mean to. I don't mean to objectify actuaries at all. I mean they're they're fine people. I have every reason to believe. Okay, so we could t- we'll take another call. I did say women should call in. That means I should take. Oh yes, I should take somebody who does want to talk about the coronation, albeit. In a disgusted tone, uh, here is Ruth. You, Ruth, you uh, have the floor. Thank you, Colin. <clears throat> and um, I definitely was affected in a nauseous way. I couldn't believe the bowing and the pomp and circumstance to poor King Charles and the oils and the special cloak and everybody holding the cake. I, I found it horrible with everything that that is going on in the world, including in England. It just, it was repulsive to me. It was his, his waiting for the 70 years, whatever it was. It, 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 to me, it was just a turn off. I know there's lots of people that love it, including many Americans. Uh, but for me, it was, it was repulsive. So how much time did you spend watching it being repulsed, out of curiosity? I, I would say off and on, uh, maybe total, maybe tops an hour. Maybe. Right. So, but, but I don't even think it was that much. That's a decent chunk of time, though. I, Luke, can I say one thing about the oils? The oils are yeah. really interesting. So uh, the oils, uh, I believe it is a holy oil and balsam together. And, it <laughs> yeah. is, and it's what's called, which I find hilarious for reasons I will not go into, <laughs> it's called chrism, C-H-R-I-S-M, chrism. And so that, that's the oil that, with which the king is anointed. <laughs> and it's, it's like chrism as in Christian, too. So yeah. because part yeah. of, and so here's an, here's an interesting, then you'll enjoy this with your macabre attitude towards the British royalty. So um, throughout history, this business of consecration has always been a part of being a king. You, you, you get crowned or coronated, but you also have to get consecrated. And it turns out that historically, kings who, whose accession was possibly going to be disputed, the, the kings, the Richard III types, you know, who were like, eh, maybe he's going to be king, maybe he's not. They would rush the consecration. The idea being, if God had yes. proclaimed you king, it was a lot harder to get rid of you. Um, so the, so, but anyway, that's what the oils are all about. They have to anoint them with this holy oil as part of their church duties, which are essentially, as far as I can tell, completely meaningless. Um, as I'm concerned too. You know, just, I, yeah. You know what I think it I so right. I had this I had an apersu this weekend which is that I think we're going through a period. I could be wrong about this and I could be just projecting. I think we're going through a period of kind of collective human unhappiness. I mean, un- unhappiness yeah. has been with us, you know, since the dawn of time. Homo erectus was probably unhappy. Um, but I think there's sort of a I was I it was I this weekend I read a whole bunch of different things. I read a bunch of things in the New Yorker, including Rebecca uh, Mead's uh, piece about Charles III. But I mean, you don't even have to read that piece. You watched an hour of TV. It, that was not a happy looking, and Camilla looked really unhappy. Oh. <laughs> These are unhappy people. They've been unhappy most of their lives. I mean, I Charles, you know, Charles yeah. was the product of two very unnurturing parents. 
Uh, and who, and like pretty much every kid, all four kids are messed up in some way. I mean, Andrew's totally. Andrew's the yeah. most messed up. But I, I think there's also I think one reason we gravitate towards that a little bit and say watch every single season of The Crown uh, and, and stuff like that is the unhappiness is kind of intriguing to us because. I think we most of us don't think of ourselves as unhappy, but we we experience unhappiness a lot. I don't know. I also read this New Yorker piece about the National, a band that I don't even really follow that much or know much about. But it was really all about how unhappy they are, and their music is really unhappy. And I thought, you know, there's there's a theme building here. You know? Yes, yes, yes. I I think you're probably right. I mean, we look at them with all of their uh, jewels and gold and money and. <clears throat> And people bowing down and clapping and parades and lines and lines to see them to get a glimpse and uh and then you know that there's trouble there there's trouble you know with the children with the parents with you know with the siblings and and the jealousy and everything else that goes on typically I don't mean it's just with the royals, but you know there it is out in front that even living in castles and you know getting to do everything that that they can do if they wish uh that they're not happy and that they and I and I can't help also connecting it to the fact that we have such a division in our country um and I hope you don't mind me going off a little bit that that has really been amplif- amplified by Trump so that we've got guns ablazing and uh, budgets not going to be approved, so that we can, you know, put the country on the on a cliff, and all the people that will be affected if if we don't, you know, approve the stuff that we've already spent. Because I don't think people realize that that's exactly, you know, what has happened. Right. Uh, no, I think there. I think that does cross over, Ruth. I'm going to just um, pop you on hold for a second because we got a lot of people calling in here, uh, and you're going in a lot of interesting directions. But I think that, that that to me connects more to another collapse, which is the idea of the common wheel. There is increasingly less of a sense that we're all – if we're all in this together, there's no way you're not raising the debt ceiling. You know, I mean, if they don't raise the debt ceiling, that means they don't think we're all in this together. That we think that – they think that you know it's a little bit more of a seesaw. But um, – I do want to just go back to Charles for a second, and then we'll stop talking about him, unless somebody else calls up about him. But there is, even when he was sworn in, when he was originally became king last September after his mother died, he had to sign a bunch of official documents, and there were cameras going, and (laughs) something went wrong with the pen. You remember this? I think it was the pen. There was a problem with the pen, and he went, every stinking time. (laughs) I thought, you're king. You're saying every stinking time uh, about this annoying pen of yours. Uh, and it just means if you thought that 12 luxury properties uh, and plus untold wealth would make you happy, uh, you're wrong. The other thing I want to say about Charles is he's also sort of like a Benjamin Button millennial. Like he's a millennial with the wrong, he's the wrong age. But, you know, like the oil that he did, I was talking to Ruth about the oil. This time they didn't use like civet oil and stuff like that. It was <laughs> like locally sourced, you know, plant oils and stuff. And the, his whole thing has been about alternative energy forms, climate change, trying to fight it anyway, organic gardening. I mean, organic gardening on a pretty large budget. But he, he like believes in a lot of things 
that millennials believe in. He's just way too old to be one of them. It's it's the Benjamin Button millennial. All right, we're going to take a quick break here. We'll come back. we got lots of calls. I will get to as many of them as I can. The number is 888-720-WNPR. I wonder what the king is doing tonight. What merriment is the king pursuing tonight? The candles at the court, they never burn as bright. I wonder what the king is up to tonight. How goes the final hour as he sees the bridal power being regally and legally prepared? Well, I'll tell you what the king is doing tonight. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. By the way, that singer is named Elise Weinberg. And I've become... A, we're doing a show later this week about rabbit holes. Uh, and I've gone down a rabbit hole ever since we did the Connie Converse show. There's just almost this bottomless well of women singers, women singer-songwriters from the 60s and 70s who would get one album out or two albums out and they wouldn't be successful and then they'd either, they wouldn't have the resilience to go back up against it, or there would be some other overarching problem, or a whole bunch of things would conspire against them. And like, I, I keep, I've been now making a list of them, and everything I think, time I think, well, the list is complete. I discover another. We're going to do a whole show about this. <laughs> I may have to do like a whole show, like I'll have to be on every Saturday night doing three more lost women's songs. And they're good. They're, I mean, I've only run into one. I won't say who, who I didn't think was, I mean, I, she can't sing on key. But um, other, other than that, I'm, most of these people are kind of riveting in one way or another. Uh, and so, uh, well, anyway, it, it's, it's just fascinating. <laughs> just and it, Fascinating, unfortunately, in kind of a sad way. I think that uh, there was a lot of potential that was thwarted 
Um, all right, we'll do we'll do one more coronation call, and then we'll move on to other things. But we have uh, Petra, how to exciting in Hamden. Hi, Petra, you're on the air. Hello, Colin. Thank you for taking my call. I, I'm a trans woman. You're looking for women. I'm sitting here in my color block purple dress in my car. I stopped, and I, I just had to tell you that uh, there's an analogy to understand the British monarchy, the, the Japanese emperor. I mean, the, these, two, these two organizations, they, they make their nations into families. That's what they're about. And, and uh, it, it, a, a nation in some ways is a family. I mean, it's, uh, we don't recognize it because we've got all this enlightenment rationality going on. But uh, there's nothing that makes people a nation except some sense of kinship. I think you're right. And, and I think, you know, if you talk to the British people, I mean, there are certainly small R Republicans, uh, you know, all over the place in England. But even some of the Republicans said about the coronation, yeah, I don't really think we should have a king, but I get that it's really important to a lot of my countrymen. And so I certainly will, you know, I'll be paying attention to it kind of on that basis. But And I bet there are a lot of people who actually are more drawn to the monarchy than they even let on when they make statements like that. But there is a sense, I think, of, you know, rather than some kind of universalist uh, resentment at the kind of opulence and privilege that goes with these jobs uh, to the exclusion of any kind of meaningful duties or at least marginally meaningful duties, I think people, they kind of like having them or they wouldn't be there anymore. <laughs> so exactly. I think you're right. Yeah. The other thing you said that was right I think, is that uh, maybe somebody else could be head of the Commonwealth, because, and that is allowed under their law. They could elect another head of the British Commonwealth. But having the Commonwealth is a wonderful thing, because you're talking about 2.5 billion people, 54 countries. If, if these countries, and they're linked by parliaments and English language and et cetera, and this is because of the great matriarchal British Empire, I mean, the, if you look at the British Empire as opposed to the Roman or the Greek or the Persian, I mean, these empires, the Chinese, I mean, this empire had Queen Elizabeth I, Victoria, Queen Elizabeth II. I mean, this is a, a very maternalistic empire, extremely uh, uh, conservative sexual laws they've imposed on a lot of the world, in fact, to the harm of that. But, but and again, they've also nurtured. Uh, variation now, and uh, it's a uh, it's a, a wonderful phenomenon that I, I wish they would exploit more. Because uh, if they if the British if the Commonwealth had a common economic policy, immigration policy, environmental policy, it would have a huge impact. Right. I mean, I think there's sort of you know in terms of, of it being matriarchal, some of that's been the luck of the draw. You know, I mean, they've had two very very long lived. Uh, female monarchs, uh, and I'm not sure had that not been the case that we'd be thinking about it that way. Um, all right, so uh, let's go to we've got the people who've been waiting for a while here. Here's Ken calling from Madison. Hi, Ken, you have the floor. Hi, this is Ken calling from Madison. Yes, it is. Uh, I live in a little town on the Madison on the Connecticut coast, and and I want to, I'm not going to talk about the monarchy at all. I want to talk about solar energy and um, we our high school here in town um, put up a uh, in the parking lot they put up a, over one row of car park area they put up a structure 
And the roof of the structure, which you can see through, is all solar panels. And it solves three problems. It gives the cars shade, which is wonderful. Everybody's been always looking for a shady spot to park in the summertime, in the sunny days. And um, they, they, underneath the solar panels in this uh, shady area, they have the lights that are lit by the solar panel. And it also provides a lot of electricity. Yeah. No, I, I don't know if you listen to the show. I've mentioned this idea two or three times. Um, that well, I mean, we have it. We we have it here. My my point is, how can we really get this movement movement started? It really has to happen. And I don't know why it's not happening fast. Right. Well, if King Charles had more power, uh, we'd be doing this because he's really into. <laughs> well, he, he loves all this kind of stuff, and he's yeah. very worried about climate change. I I mean, you know. It's funny because as we were getting ready to do the news on Friday, I was suggesting to the panel, maybe interesting to talk about Charles, you know, in terms of the, the contradictions. You know, there, in a way, he really represents all the kind of anti-egalitarian qualities of monarchy and a huge, a huge amassing of personal wealth. On the other hand, he's like really worried about the things that we want leaders to be worried about. And nobody wanted to do that. They just wanted to hate him but um, <laughs> and be disgusted by him and look down on him. And, which I, I get that part, but I think you can also admire it. But I, I find myself thinking, I'm trying to think of a world leader. And I know Charles III isn't really a world leader. But if he were, he would probably be more concerned about stuff like that, about how can we get more, like get solar covers in parking lots, you know, so we're generating energy out of this other, this space that otherwise is just baking asphalt, throwing heat back up into the atmosphere, uh, and we'd be, we'd be doing all kinds of terrific things. I, he would be more vocal about that than anybody I know. I mean, you know, these days, you know, leaders like Biden and stuff, they feel some need to talk about stuff like that. And I don't mean to suggest he's unserious about it, but I don't think it's his biggest priority. I mean, Sanders is probably the closest thing we've really had to a significant national politician who really, really wants to do some stuff like that. And that isn't, it is, that isn't even his number one thing. It's probably his number two or three thing. But, you know, I think what it's going to take is to have world leaders who get into office and say, and there are some, I think, in Western Europe, uh, who say there is nothing more important than this. Nothing is more important than addressing climate change and addressing the way that we generate and consume energy uh, and the way that we create spaces that will be that will serve us better and harm the planet less. I mean, there have to be leaders, important world leaders, who think that that's job number one, two, and three, and then there's something else that comes in fourth. And I don't really think that we have that. And, and I think it, that's to our great detriment. Okay, here is uh, Iman. Uh, hi, Iman. Oh, hello. Um, hi, Colin. Um, so I wanted to say um, right now, I think in Connecticut, there are beautiful rivers, lakes, creeks and everything. Um, and I kind of want to explore them the way that I would explore like a state park and like walk through them, swim through them. Um, and I feel like that isn't a social norm <laughs> or like that's not allowed. And I wanted to know your thoughts about this. Um, yeah, I think in some ways, a hundred years ago, if people wanted to go swimming like in the Mills River, they would just do it. And now they don't. It's Say a little bit more about, I, I think I understand the point that you're making, but just say a little bit more to help me. Yeah, like, I, I think there's a way in which, yeah, we see ourselves as, like, separate from the world around us. 
Um, and I think getting out into our state parks and national parks kind of helped to remove that boundary between self and the environment. But I do think that when it comes to water, there's this sort of a backness. Um, we could definitely go to beaches, but like there are like we have beautiful ponds, rivers and lakes that one could swim in. I drive by them all the time. And in the summer, I don't see anyone swimming. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I think some of this is a little bit of a Connecticut thing. I think there are other places in America that you could go. I mean, even as far as Vermont. As, as New, I was going to say Vermont. Vermont, like swimming holes are a big thing. You know, I mean, knowing where the really good swimming holes are uh, along a, a river. Uh, that's like a thing that you do and that you know. And, and yes, there's a lot of use made of lakes. And obviously you go to the Midwest, uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin, places like that. They're just very sort of lake intensive. Um, but I think there is in Connecticut, and it may be a little bit of a hangover from our industrial past. I mean, people forget yeah. that you know Connecticut was a real cradle of 19th century and early 20th century industrialization. And when you do that, you befoul many of the water waterways around you. And so there may be sort of a sense that people just, you know, I, I don't think people are stay entirely away from rivers and lakes, but there may be a little sense of, really, can I go in there? Is it safe? Is there going to be something bad for me in there? Are there going to be PCBs or something? Am I going to get sick? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've swum a bunch in the Housatonic and places like that, but yeah. but. Every time I did, I, I thought, mean, oh, yeah, I wonder, I wonder if they fixed that problem up in Pittsfield or I'm just giving myself yeah. liver cancer. Yeah, I mean, they did. They have cleaned up the Hudson River a bit in New York, and I think that has recently become somewhat swimmable again. So, like, you know, anything's possible, and I think we should take care of our water. Um, but even just, like, knowing what water might have contaminants and what doesn't, like, might alleviate some of that you know, like separateness from the water and swimming. I think people should be swimming more. I want to be swimming more. It's hot. I want to like jump in the river by my house like every day. Right. You know, one thing that I, that I, my mind flashes back to as you talk is um, the beginning, the first year or so of the pandemic um, where everybody became a transcendentalist. You know, everybody was mm -hmm. suddenly Ralph Waldo Emerson. Uh, and, mm -hmm. you know, people weren't going to work as much. They were a little bit housebound. Restaurants were maybe locked down for a while. You know, some of the conventional indoor sources of entertainment, movie theaters, stuff like that weren't functioning. And I'm somebody, I do a lot of walking with my dog and we're often, you know, I, we like to go places where there's nobody around so he can run around and be an idiot. Uh, and... I was suddenly discovering I'd pull up to these previously deserted places and there'd be like 20, 30 cars. There'd be cars, you know, overflowing the parking lot. And it was like everybody thought, oh, yeah, the outdoors, walking, it's great, you know. And, I mean, this was in November, December of 20 uh, and January and February and March of 21. Uh, and it just seemed like suddenly everybody had decided that this was a great thing to do, which I thought was wonderful, even though it kind of messed up my life a little bit. But it's I a thought, good thing. Yeah, it's a good thing. And I don't know. It was like the minute people could go back to doing other stuff, they just went back. Uh, yeah. and Actually, that brings me to the second part of my question. Yeah. Do you have favorite outdoor spots in Connecticut? Well, if I tell them, you know, then you'll go. Then people will go there. Will no, I mean, I think, you know, I, one of my favorite places is the McLean Game Refuge, which is sort of in the northern northern part of Simsbury, maybe straddles a little bit into Granby. Simsbury also has this other conservation land that kind of spills off to the side of McLean and goes all the way down to West Road. Uh, 
Um, I mean, in terms of places that I can get to pretty easily from where I live and that I know them well enough so that I can take a side trail and I know where I'll be coming back out, that's that's probably my, my number one choice. But a lot of it depends on, you know, what you're close to, where you live, you know, yeah. and, and how far you want to drive. So I'm kind of up here. and I mean, we have, where I am, we have all kinds of really lovely places to go and wonderful places to walk and stuff like that. But they're all over Connecticut. And I do, mm-hmm. you know, we, we had this thing during our pledge drive with the Forest and Parks Association. They're the people with the blue oval signs who you know, do the blue trails. And I know they do, I think they do two separate guidebooks, north and south, that show you all the really great hikes and stuff like that. And those are tremendously useful. They've, I've used them in the past. When my son was young, we made a point of just like hitting a lot of those places. So, um, so anyway, well, I should go, but uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Iman, one of our favorite and inveterate callers. And perhaps, perhaps the thing to do is to take our second and final break right now. Why don't we do that, Kat? We'll grab a break right here. We'll come back and we'll, we have lots of call, more calls to take. When an irresistible force such as you meets an old immovable object like me you can bet as sure as you live something's gotta give something's gotta give something's gotta give And we are back. Time to thank, first of all, our technical producer, Kat Pastor. Great to have her back in her seat. Uh, Dylan Rays, who was filling in for her in her absence, is doing stuff now. He's down in Virginia. He's going He's sending up strange music for the billboards, which is the thing that precedes the news, which if you're listening to the podcast, you probably don't hear anyway. Um, and the uh, producer today is our senior producer, Lily Tyson, as I mentioned before. Mr. McPants has the day off today. Uh, we've got some fun uh, stuff coming up ahead this week, including a show about hotlines, uh, an episode about rabbit holes, and then we're going to do the nose, and I think it's about Bupkis. I think it's about the TV series Bupkis this week. All right, so... It's Ask or Tell Me Anything. The number is 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. We've got lots of things to talk about here. Well, poor Dave. Dave from New Britain has been on the line for quite a while. Let's do something about that right now. Hi, Dave. You have the floor. Hey, Callan. Great to be here. Um, second time caller. So um, I'm a collector of uh, fun and crazy and useless geographical facts about Connecticut. And uh, would you like to hear some? <laughs> you may know some of these. I may. Why don't get, you know, let's just do two or three of them, sure. Okay. Now, Stores has been in the news. Obviously, everybody in America knows Stores, Connecticut. But in fact, did you know that Stores is not its own municipality? It's Mansfield. It's, it's a district of Mansfield. It's part of Mansfield. <clears throat> and, you know, I never knew that until a few years ago. So it's like, you know, bothered me all these years living in Connecticut. I never knew that. <laughs> well, Connecticut, first of all, is full of places that are not actual towns. Um, right. And, and and ways in which the towns are kind of flip-flopped. For example, what people think of as the town of Canaan is actually the town of North Canaan. What people think of as Falls Village is actually Canaan. Uh, anyway, give me another fun fact. See if you can stop Oh, me. God. Well, this one you might know and a lot of people know. Okay, we've all heard of Mystic. It's the number one tourist place in Connecticut, and that is—that is what it is. It's a place. It's actually a village. Part of Groton. It's part of Groton. <laughs> Groton and Stonington together. Yeah. It's not its own town. Not even its own. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I have the. I have another one. Okay. Um, 
So you probably know, you drive around a lot in the, um, there's three Farmington avenues and one of them does not even go into Farmington, and that's in New Britain. It does not even go into Farmington. That's right. That's up, that's, a, that's up over around CCU or CCSU or something like that. Well, those are fun facts, Dave, but I have to go and talk to another Dave, and he's not even Connecticut. He's in Ohio. It's Lake Como Dave. Uh, hi, Dave. You're on the air. Alan, how are you? Just Long fine. Time. Just fine. Um, I feel, I know you got people, so to speak, lined up around the block to call in today, so I appreciate your, your uh, having me on, and I'll, I'll move it forward, and you just give me the hook when you need to. I feel like in, in the topic I'm going to launch, it's a little bit like walking into a nice wine tasting or dinner party and lighting off firecrackers and stink bombs, and, you know, I, I don't want to do that. But um, the big topic of last week and a half or so, Connie Converse, I found the show really interesting, as, as I did, you know, the... Uh, the author of the, the book on her. And so, you know, I started listening. I, I think there's about 22 songs that you can find on YouTube, although I haven't made a, you know, endless search. And out of all those that I listened to, um, there's a couple that I thought were really good songs. How Sad, How Lovely. Mm-hmm. Uh, Playboy of the Western World uh, is very nice, and it has a really interesting bridge. I yes. Empty Pocket Waltz is interesting. I thought There is a Vine has very poignant lyrics. There's a lot of yearning in, in But I think I, I think we're I know where we're headed because I also know from Facebook <laughs> a little bit. But ultimately it didn't grab you, right? Well or the whole thing did. As a whole package. Um, yeah. The whole package does not grab me and also um I mean if I were a music ex- uh, industry executive then or now I would say you know what? Her lyrics are lovely, and but the voice just will not sustain um, a career, uh, and and that's just kind of how how it seems to me. I have not been able to locate the. I think they're called something musics with a C K S. Well, yeah, the, there, yeah, there are, um, you know, these kind of art songs uh, that you know are performed at, with piano and a soprano singing them and stuff like that. Yeah, but I, I think the, I think the larger question, Dave, and then I do want to move on here. But this is something that you and I would probably talk about on, on other occasions. I, I think yeah. the idea that you know, for any kind of objective reason, we're all going to like the same music is unlikely. You know, I mean, there just are things that are not for us or for us or, you know, I mean, the first time I heard Connie Converse, it was really like just a very haunting experience. But I, I would never expect other people to uh, to share it. It's a pretty idiosyncratic choice. I think you also yeah. saw uh, on Facebook uh, over the weekend, I was reading this really, really long New Yorker article about The National, and I was fascinated by the article. The article said, so much to me about creativity and unhappiness and, and how teams have to function together to come up with creative pr- products, which I really identified in terms of our show. But I didn't really know their music. And I kept thinking, why am I reading 3,500 words about a band that I really I couldn't name one of their songs? And so when I got all the yeah. way through, I started listening to their songs. And I don't think I'm ever going to get into the national, even though it's clear, yeah. right. really, really smart people who know a lot about music, you know, like yeah. the national. And I think, you know, that's one of the mysteries of music, something that you've really spent your life studying and thinking about. One of the mysteries is, why don't we all like the same stuff? <laughs> you know? I mean, we don't. And in fact, it's probably true also that the more that something is close to being a common denominator, the more that a musically discerning person isn't going to like it. So 
Um, you know, I just it's it is one of the little mysteries. And I think sometimes it's also we are like baby ducks and we imprint on things. You know, if you imprint on something at the right moment, if I were the right age to have imprinted on the national at the right moment, I'd probably like them better than I'm going to even if I try really hard. All right. We're going to move over to Alicia in Windsor. Hi. You have the floor. Hi. How are you? I'm fine. Right. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit because Mother's Day is coming up about some radical self-care that a group of women that are in the area are doing. I know you know about roller derby because we call in to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really been wonderful to have some women who are mothers take time for themselves to do something that's very scary. And usually women are known for being nurturing. And these women are smashing into each other on roller skates and pretty much playing football, playing offense and defense at the same time, um, taking some time for themselves while also caring for three, four, five kids and a partner and, you know, fur babies and all that jazz. Um, So I wanted to invite you to come and see them play roller derby at Nomads at Southland in Southland um, on Saturday. All right. Well, first of all, I think, you know, what's really interesting about this, and maybe this is also the subject for further pursuit, is that kind of Mm -hmm. idea that, you know, I mean, when we think of Mother's Day, oh, what should mom do on Mother's Day? Well, she should treat herself to something, you know, but people are thinking, you know, maybe she doesn't have to cook or she goes to a salon or a spa or something like that. But, you know, maybe what we're sort of seeing here is that just dealing with life, with all the Mm -hmm. pressures of life. Um, one thing that builds up in you that you can't necessarily let go in any safe or constructive way is aggression. Aggression and and maybe mm-hmm. a, a desire for some kind of thrill, you know, that isn't necessarily yeah. 100% safe. You spend as a mom so much time worrying about the safety of your little ducklings there that uh, you don't – I mean, there is part of every human being, I think, that desires something that isn't risk-free. And, and I really yeah. – I think the way you described that was very in- intriguing. Yeah, and socially safe as well, because anger and aggression is not a socially safe emotion for women to typically put out into the open because of, you know, just how we how we uh, how we stereotype and uh, socialize women in general. Yeah, no, I think that's brilliantly explained. And I think it's a great point, too. All right. I'm going to keep moving here. Um, I I hope I'm saying this right. Mikkel in New London. Did I say your name correctly? Yes, um, I'd just like to make a quick statement um, uh, about the um, coronation over the weekend in the UK. Um, their their argument over here across the pond is that um, uh, the, the inauguration of a president, what more uh, pomp and circumstances is that every four years the president is re reinaugurated and he walks down down Pennsylvania Avenue and also last the when the president um, the presidential balls. And when the president speaks to um, Congress every four years, every year, what more, what more uh, contradiction is that, if any? Yeah, no, I think I think that's true. Every nation chooses the kind of pomp and circumstance that kind of fits uh, its personality. But I, I don't think there are many. You know, even sort of, you know, out and out communist regimes, there's still you know big parades and you know and, and military parades and stuff like that. So, yeah, I don't think I, I don't think you, the people in the U.S. have any right looking down their noses at, at the coronation. I mean, what, one thing that I do like about this, they spread the coronation this time over out over three days, and a lot of people in England got today off because today was kind of 
People's Day uh, of the coronation. So it was a day off for a lot of people in, in England, which, see, you know, if they want people to like the presidency more, they should start doing stuff like that. But I, I totally take your point and agree with your point. All right. I bet you're going to get to all these calls here. Uh, here is Ev in Hamden. Hi, you have the floor. Hi, Karen. Um I wanted you to be aware of the Connecticut Environmental Rights Amendment. It's an initiative which you've started. Um, and if we get it through the state legislature, then it'll go on a on a ballot um, um, for a referendum. But it'll be an amendment to the Constitution. Right now, you do not have the right to clean water, clean air, clean soil, and a healthy environment. And that's the four tenets. And um, unlike other rights like, um, you know, property rights, uh, due process, um, you know, religion, right to bear arms. And this is a this is a state amendment. It's not a federal amendment because it wouldn't fly there. Uh, New York's passed it in 2021. Pennsylvania's had it for quite a while. Um, Montana has had it. Yeah, no, I, I like the idea of it. It can be the basis of, of lawsuits, class action suits. There are also movements in the country. We've kind of covered them to give rights, individual rights to like streams and back to Iman's call to rivers and lakes and stuff like that, that a lake could conceivably pursue. I think with you know a certain amount of assistance, um, something that ordinarily uh, could could pursue its own interest uh, in courts. Uh, I like that idea too. All right. Oh, I've got exactly one minute for Mike from East Windsor. Hi, Mike. You have the floor. Except that I didn't click you in. That would be so nice. Where did my? There's the little arrow. It just disappeared for a second. There we. Now you have the floor, Mike. I used up some of your time being a bumbling idiot. Oh, hey, Kyle. I just want to say. Um, I used to carry the current. I used to live in Hartford, mm-hmm. and I was a newspaper boy. And and um, I listened to your show all the time. Um, I used to read the paper and the end, and you inspire me. Well, thank you. Um, and but, but what I wanted to say is that's where AI is going. It's 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 taking away jobs. You know, kids don't carry newspapers anymore. People don't, like, you know, get to work anymore. And it was cool when it was, like, mechanized just for people that were in the um, labor industry. But now that it's, because you had a show last week, um, but but now that it's going into, like, the medical industry, to um, the writers, to people that went to college, now all of a sudden there's a problem. I see. I see what you're saying. Yeah, the the people who who control kind of opinion making, they don't get worried until it laps up on their own shoes. I do. I want to. Well, I don't have time. Uh, I would love to talk more about AI. We'll do it on another occasion. Thanks for listening. The number you have reached has.